0: Welcome back to another episode of Candid Cardboard, the monthly series where we get candid with the cardboard, and I share my first impressions of new-ish board games. Today we're going to be talking about four releases from the past few years, specifically Hibachi, Nusfjord, Lama, and the Treasure Island expansion. But that's not all. We are also going to be having a lightning round of five classic games I have been playing, specifically wildlife safari libertalia blue moon legends bonanza and tower of babel my name is nick murray and this is the bitewing games podcast So let's start things off by talking about the Treasure Island expansion, known as Captain Silver Revenge Island, which I have one play of so far. I finally got to try the new expansion to one of my favorite, refreshingly unique designs, Treasure Island, and it didn't disappoint. I've always appreciated Treasure Island for its thematic treasure hunt style of gameplay, where one player acts as Long John Silver, who buries his treasure on a massive island and marks the spot with an X on his tiny secret map. Meanwhile, the remaining players are pirates who scour the game board with dry erase markers as they search for the buried treasure and narrow their search with hints, clues, and bluffs from Captain Silver. The mere act of tracing routes and circling search areas and sectioning off regions with markers on the game board makes Treasure Island a novel experience. Add in the pirate bluffing, semi-cooperation, and devious manipulation, and this design becomes a real winner for me. That said, this isn't the type of game that I would want to play on a frequent basis. I think it benefits most from long gaps between plays, and your mileage will vary depending on whether you prefer to be the deducing pirate or the Captain Silver puppet master. Additionally, most veterans of Treasure Island will tell you that the game board is too saturated with color and the markers are too weak leading to to difficult-to-read colors and markings on the board. Up to this point, the suggested solution has been to replace the provided markers in the box with neon markers or dry-erase chalk pens, which pop up much better on the components. Fortunately, the expansion amends this issue by including a game board with dimmed colors that make the standard markers stand out perfectly fine. That's one base game issue solved, and it's not the only lifestyle improvement this expansion provides. The expansion also features a sticker for Captain Silver's player shield that tweaks and improves his movement capabilities for when he escapes his tower in the late game and books it to the treasure. This is actually a rules tweak that has been suggested by the creators for years, one that we implemented into our plays long ago, but now the expansion makes it official. Finally, many groups have complained that the game is too easy for pirates and too hard for Captain Silver to win. I'd argue that the difficulty of the game depends heavily on the cleverness of Captain Silver and his chosen bluffs and clues. His or hers, that is. Although there is certainly some luck involved in a game where players spend many actions tracing search circles based solely on gut feelings and probabilities. But the designer, Mark Pekin... And publisher Matagot heard this complaint and addressed it in a way that works for the entire spectrum of skill levels. That's because they have provided Captain Silver with Ruse cards. And he's allowed to use multiple cards or stronger cards depending on the difficulty level that the group decided on at the start of the game. These cards can allow Long John to dodge defeats or throw pirates off the scent of his treasure, buying him a little more time to snatch the victory for himself. And some of these Ruse cards are really spicy such as an accomplice card that lets you move the treasure a short distance from where you initially buried it, or a treasure card that allows you to secretly recruit another player to join your team and cover your tracks by convincing others to search in dead areas. Aside from these improvements, the only other feature the expansion provides is a second map. This map comes with a couple unique clue cards, a different island layout, and a couple restrictions for pirates. Specifically, pirates are not allowed to to pass through urban areas with a move longer than 3 miles, nor are they allowed to do a large search action in any forested terrain. These restrictions are balanced out in what feels like a tighter, smaller game board compared to the original island. That said, I'm not sure if the changes are worth all the extra trouble of having to remind players what they can and can't do on this board. All in all, Revenge Island is an expansion that I feel is a worthwhile addition, for a game that I enjoy to break out and introduce to people on occasion. Yet at this point, it seems like Matagot should just discontinue the original game and release an updated version that includes all the improvements and additions in a single box. This expansion is simply a bunch of improved replacements with a few extra cards and tokens thrown in for a variety. I've already tossed the old components and fit everything into the original box, and I think Matagot should too. My current rating of the Treasure Island expansion, known as Captain Silver Revenge Island, is 7.5 out of 10. Moving on, we're going to talk about the famous Spiel des Jahres nominee from 2019, designed by Reiner Knizia and published by Amigo Games, Llama, which I have three plays of. This one's been sitting on my shelf long enough that I finally gave in to the temptation of trying it at two players knowing full well that this is likely the worst way to play Rainer Knizia's Llama. After three plays in a row, my fears were confirmed. I come away from these plays offering what little praise I can muster. Specifically, it's better than Uno. (laughs) The game consists of a deck of cards ranging from one to six, plus llamas. With eight of each card total, turns are blazingly fast as players must either play a card equal to or one higher than the number displayed on the discard pile, draw a card, or cut their losses and quit the rounds. Llamas can be played on llamas or sixes, and ones can be played on llamas, thus resetting the cycle. Just like an uno, getting rid of your cards is great, as cards left in your hand at the end of a round result in negative points according to their face value. Furthermore, you only count each unique card once, so five threes in your hand is much better than a hand of two, three, and four. Llamas are the stinkers of the deck in that they tack ten negative points onto your score. Yet point chips come in white ones and black tens, and if you manage to play all the cards in your hand, you end the round and earn the bonus of discarding one chip, black or white, from your score. The only substantial decision of the game comes when you must decide whether to draw another card to keep your hopes of thinning your hand alive or cut your losses and quit with the remaining cards in your hand as further dents in your score. If your hand has a lot of duplicates, then quitting can have its benefits. The last opponent still in the round can no longer draw cards. Thus, they can only play legal numbers from their hands. So I can try to quit early with a decent hand and hope that I've left my opponent with an even worse hand that they can't get rid of. It's extremely simple, very luck-driven, but again, there's at least more meat on the bone than Uno. Even then, this is a sad feast for a card game that leaves me wholly unsatisfied, especially having tried it at two players. Now I'm sure that with a few more personalities around the table, things get more lively and decisions slightly more interesting, but such gaming opportunities with others are too few and far between for me to even consider giving Llama such precious tabletop time. The opportunity cost is too great for me to recklessly spend rare gatherings on games that are only mildly amusing at best. For a game as cheap as Llama, I do find that there is one thread keeping it tethered to my collection. Specifically, five years from now, when I can play it with my wife and our two daughters, who will be old enough to understand and enjoy the colorful simplicity of Llama. I can guarantee you that they'll be deeply familiar with this game long before they've ever even heard of Uno. My current rating of Llama is 4.5 out of 10. Now let's talk about a Kickstarter release that I've been anticipating for quite a while now from Grail Games, it is Hibachi, which I have one play of so far. Hibachi is a new release from Grail Games that is a really implementation of 2010's Safranito by Marco Tubner. Overall, Hibachi is nearly identical to Safranito with only a few minor exceptions. It seems that Grow Games has opted to streamline the rules and speed up the gameplay by selecting a standardized setup and flow that keep the game at a more brisk pace of earning ingredients and fulfilling recipes. I haven't played the original Safranito, but based on my experience with Hibachi and understanding of the differences, I think this new version has the superior rule set and production. This game caught my eye on Kickstarter late last year with its unique blend of skillful, poker chip tossing, and tactical sealed bidding. The objective is to toss poker chips onto a large board. Buy or sell the ingredients that your chips land on and be the first to fulfill three orders using the ingredients you purchase. It's a race that demands both dexterous prowess and smart budgeting. The game board is a large square with raised edges to help contain the sliding chips. This board is made up of nine large circular ingredient spaces and four small bonus action spaces, Players each receive a set of six large, hefty poker chips with a small hole cut out of the center. They take turns throwing one chip at a time face down onto the board, hoping to get the hole of their chip to stop over a desired space. I suppose there are different options for how to throw your chip, but most of us opted for a miniature frisbee toss technique. It takes a bit of practice to get the wrist flick and finger release just right, but we quickly found ourselves landing our chips in the intended spaces roughly 60 or 70% of the time. The epic failures are absolutely part of the fun, and seeing a chip end up way too short or far always prompted a lively reaction from the table. There is certainly the opportunity for opponent screwage, as your sliding poker chip can careen into another well-placed chip and send it far off from where it began. Yet one particular nice improvement to Hibachi that Saffronito lacked is the opportunity to collect a new chili card for each of your poker chips that end up in a dead space. These chili cards can be spent in sets of two to substitute for a single ingredient when fulfilling an order. So even your invalid poker chips don't feel like a total waste. Although another amusing rule here is that when the chili card pile runs out, the player with the most chili cards stashed in their hand must return all of them to the pile. So these wild cards have a frequent use it or lose it pressure to them. But I'd say that the truly spicy mechanism here lies in the sealed bidding. Poker chips range from 1 to 6. They'll be flipped face up after the tossing phase is finished, and the player with the highest sum on a space gets exclusive rights to the bonus action or first dibs on the ingredients. The only catch is that the ingredient will cost you the total value of your chips on that space. So you constantly must decide whether to bid high and guarantee yourself one of the precious few ingredients available, or bid low and hope that nobody swoops in and steals your desired card away. But before the purchasing of an ingredient can happen, players have the opportunity to sell that ingredient from their hand for a price equal to the sum total of all players' poker chips that are displayed on that space. So when you see loads of chips aiming for the same spot and you already have one or more ingredients of that type, you'll find yourself tempted by the lucrative opportunity of selling your hard-earned cards for cash rather than saving them for victory. The small bonus action spaces are not to be ignored either, as one of these spaces ended up winning me our first game. One space allows you to toss an extra unused chip from your hand after the tossing phase of a round is finished. This can turn the tide of a round in your favor, assuming your aim is true with the bonus toss. Another space lets you draw as many ingredient cards as the value of the chip thrown so you can keep one in your personal stash. The third space grants you a private recipe card that can be fulfilled at the end of a round and at the same time you fulfill a public recipe. Where three fulfilled recipes instantly wins you the game, this is one space that can really give you a competitive edge. Finally, the fourth space lets you steal the Master Chef token, a delightful little wooden soy sauce bottle, mid-round, which means that ties and turn order go in your favor for the buying and cooking phases. In our first play of hibachi, my wife Camille caught an early lead and was the first to fulfill two recipes. We were fortunate that later rounds were less successful for her, and soon all players were tied at a sudden death standoff of two fulfilled recipes each. Suddenly, the soy sauce bottle was the most vital space on the board, as the owner of the bottle would get to fulfill an order first to win the game. Since Camille currently possessed the bottle and I sat to her right, I would be the last player to make a toss onto the board. I managed to knock her own chip off the soy sauce bottle space and replace it with my own, and nobody had a chip on the bonus toss space, meaning I was able to snatch away the bottle and cross the finish line first by default of stolen turn order. For a novel game that frequently makes you feel both intellectually clever and digitally gifted, and by digital, I mean physical fingers, I'd say that Grail Games nailed their company mission of breathing new life into a hidden gem. My current rating of hibachi is 8 out of 10. Now let's talk about the legendary Uwe Rosenberg and his game Neusfjord, which I have one play of so far. Uwe Rosenberg has yet to disappoint me after all of his designs that I have tried, and I've now tried seven of his games. Neusfjord doesn't stray from this pattern of success, yet I'm beginning to see another pattern in Uwe's design style. You see, I can't help but shake the feeling that many of Uwe's design children merely exist to cannibalize each other, His farming games are overshadowed by his legendary farming games. His polyomino games are crowded out by his better polyomino games. And while most of them are solid experiences in their own right, they all scratch nearly the same itch within their genre. Why would I play Cottage Garden or Indian Summer when I can instead play Patchwork or New York Zoo? Why would I play Nusfjord when I can instead play A Feast for Odin, Agricola, or Laharve? Why indeed... For those who are mega-fans of Uwe Rosenberg and his style of games, like I am of Reiner Knizia, these questions are silly and pointless. Why own both Blue Lagoon and Through the Desert? Or both Yellow and Yangtze and Tigris and Euphrates? Or both Babylonia and Samurai? They're basically all peas in the same pod, right? And you certainly don't need all six of those tile-laying Knizia designs in your collection, right? Wrong. Now get your disgusting insinuations out of my face and leave me in my precious collection alone. Look. I have no place to judge. I can only speak for myself. My problem is that I own and enjoy both a feast for Odin and Agricola. Both are incredible economic euros and I don't play either of them nearly enough. So when I'm hungry for a meaty Rosenberg game, which again is not nearly as frequent of an occurrence as my Kinesia cravings. I'm already forced to decide between two underplayed classics on top of that. I desperately want to purchase Laharve, and The Urge has been with me for months since I first tried it, yet I haven't been able to talk myself into it because I already have two underplayed Ue Economic Classics. Adding a third one to the mix is just asking for even more sadness and neglect. All this is to say that I had a great time playing New Sphered, but I would never proactively choose to play it over the previously mentioned Triforce of A Feast for Odin, Agricola, and Laharve. Regardless, let's talk a little bit about what still makes Nusfjord, the overshadowed younger sibling, a joy to play. Do you like fish? How about little blue fish meeples? How about a pile of a hundred of them? Now we're talking. Nusfjord is all about clearing trees, building a harbor, and being a fisherman, or fisherwoman, in Norway. Just like any good economic Rosenberg, the worker placement gameplay is tight and interconnected while the cards are varied and plentiful. The standout aspect of this design in particular, besides the oodles of fish, is perhaps the opportunity to sell and buy shares of each other's fishing companies. Selling shares will instantly earn you ever-precious money, but buying shares will nab you more fish from those players' nets for the rest of the game. The fish in this game are just as oily as fish in real life, keeping your economy smooth and flowing from one upgrade to the next. While you'll only ever get to use three workers each round, you'll open up more opportunities and bonuses for using them with the help of local elders and erected buildings that you'll add to your personal board. Elders act as private extra worker placement spaces that you'll need to keep feeding in order to use them. Buildings function as point and resource generators that can also improve your standard action options. It's a well-balanced sandbox of economic efficiency entertainment, something that Mr. Rosenberg has practically trademarked at this point, although New is perhaps a bit more easygoing and luck-influenced than average. Cards emerging from the decks and from under other cards can have a massive effect on the outcome of the game. Major scoring objective cards are randomly dealt out in the late game, and it's possible for one player to end up with a useless hand just as easily as a game-winning one. This is probably most people's complaint about this game. At the end of the day, Newsfjord is still miles better than most of the resource exchanging euros that have flooded the market. Its only problem is that it will forever live in the shadow of its older, more interesting siblings. As it's supposed to last only 20 minutes per player, I hear that it's particularly good as a fast 1-3 player game. So perhaps there is hope for this game yet. My current rating for Newsfjord is 7 out of 10. Alright, so I'm still waiting for some delayed pre-orders to show up, so that's all I have this time for impressions of games released in the past few years. But I've been playing loads of classics lately, so let's do a lightning round featuring these games. First up is Wildlife Safari, which I have one play of, but technically it was four games where we added our scores together. Anyway, this is not my favorite Kinesia filler, but it's definitely one of his better Dead Simple card games. I would play this over Llama, Well, Riders the Card Game, Modern Art Card Game, and some more. All you do is simply play an animal card, numbered 0 through 5, and take any animal token. The game ends once all animal cards of one type have been placed, and the last card played of each animal determines the scoring value of their matching tokens. While I didn't feel I had as much control over the game state as I tend to prefer in these types of games, it's still a thrill to invest in certain animals, influence their values, and save a juicy card for a final boom or bust. My current rating of Wildlife Safari is 7 out of 10. Next classic game I played recently, Libertalia, which I have one play of. I'm a big fan of Palomori's work. We even had another great session of Ethnos this past week. But Libertalia feels its age in board game years. The gameplay of simultaneously selecting a card to bid for token drafting order was merely okay for me. I get the appeal of starting with the same hands and having unused cards carry over from one campaign to the next, but I still don't think the design merits the length it took to play. I would have much preferred to play a faster 2 campaign game or 3 speedier campaigns. It seems as though the game possesses a variety of reasons to keep you coming back for more, but then it blows most of its surprises in one play and overstays its welcome by a lot. I realize this one is still ranked in the top 500 on BoardGameGeek but I think Ethnos and Dogs of War wipe the floor with Libertalia. My current rating of Libertalia, 5.5 out of 10. Now let's talk about Blue Moon Legends, which I have two plays of. I've been wanting to talk about Reiner Kinesia's famous Blue Moon Legends, but this is one meaty game that I feel like I've only scratched the surface of. We've merely dipped our toes in the shallow end of the pool so far, sticking to the two recommended starting decks. Where I haven't even jumped into the advanced rules or decks yet, I doubt I could offer much valuable input here. But regarding our first couple plays, I found Blue Moon Legends to be a tight, engaging game of chicken, featuring a very Kinesian flow of battles in the form of auctions. I'm not a fan of the artwork, and it is all the more disheartening to hear that a publisher nearly produced a new version of this game, one that would presumably have more imaginative illustrations. But I'll take what I can get at this point, I found a used copy online. For those who enjoy diving deep into dueling games such as Summoner Wars, Magic the Gathering, or other collectible card games, this might be a great option for you. On the other hand, Blue Moon is probably much more streamlined and subtle than what many CCG fans have come to expect from the genre, so I could see them coming away disappointed instead of delighted. I think this game is likely best for people who become intimately familiar with the decks where they can fully mine its tactical richness. My current rating of Blue Moon Legends is 8 out of 10, and I certainly want to keep playing it more. Next let's talk about Bonanza, which I have two plays of, although they are years apart. <laughs> the second play was was very recent. Bonanza is a solid, accessible negotiation game, and you could certainly do much worse for a gateway card game. But I find that Chinatown and Quovadis scratch the same itch in roughly the same time, much better. Both games offer more lively and interesting negotiations, more strategic flexibility, more tension, more drama, and they are equally accessible gateway games. I suppose the main thing that Bonanza has to its advantage is its wider player count and much kinder gameplay, at least in groups where that matters. I actually think the art is better than people give it credit for, particularly the bean illustrations. But perhaps the core color palette of neon yellow could be more palatable. I also appreciate the novelty and pressure of the unadjustable hand sequencing. This is perhaps the most clever and interesting aspect of Bonanza. On the flip side, my least favorite part is how hosed you can feel when the game ends before you've had an equal number of turns. The only thing that counteracts this significant advantage is that ties go in your favor, but that's a little consolation when you had a couple cards in your hand ready to score you more points on your turn. As there are both faster card games and meteor negotiation games in my collection, I just don't see this one getting played very often. At the same time, I'm reluctant to get rid of it, because I agree that it's something special and worth breaking out every once in a while. My current rating for Bonanza is 6 out of 10. Finally, let's talk about Tower of Babel, which I have one play of. I hate nearly everything about the look and production of this game, and the theme honestly doesn't do much for me either. But Kenichi is on something here with the design. We ignored the unsanctioned special slash action cards as others have suggested and stuck with the pure Euro goodness of contributing building cards to wonder construction and competing for the most contributions. I like, how, I like how quickly the game plays and how it keeps players active throughout. I dig the offering mechanism with the interesting wrinkles of adding a trade card to your offer or gaining points for rejected offers. On your turn, you'll simply propose a wonder to progress the construction on and select one of the discs at that wonder to be both the building requirement and the scoring bonus of your turn. Your opponents can simultaneously offer matching cards from their hand, and you have the freedom to accept any of their offers and or you can also add cards from your own hand. The catch is that you must accept every card in an opponent's accepted offer. Meanwhile, rejected opponents score points for every card they offered. Indeed, rejection has never felt so good as it does here in Reiner Canizia's Tower of Babel. If your opponent adds a trade card to their offer and you accept it, then they'll get to keep the endgame scoring disc instead of you from a successful construction. But you'll get to place your color of pieces instead of theirs for even more control of that particular wonder. It's quite the interesting trade-off. That's That's probably why it's called the trade card. I think currently part of me wishes there was more to earning the disc tokens than simply hiding them for set points at the end of the game. But perhaps with more plays the layers will peel back and I'll be fully satisfied with this aspect. It certainly wouldn't be the first time that's happened with the Kinesia game. For those who enjoy uncovering hidden Kinesia gems of his catalog of over 700, I'd say this one is worthy of your radar. But I'd love to see this game get a full makeover where Dr. Kinesia expands on the concept and the publisher makes it look like anything else besides this. And I say this knowing full well that Tower of Babel was actually re-implemented into Planet Rush in 2016, but from the sound of it, at least from the comments on BoardGameGeek, most people seem to prefer Tower of Babel. My current rating of this game is seven out of 10. Well, that's all I have for you today. I hope you enjoyed my first impressions of four newish games, as well as the lightning round of five classics. And I hope you're excited for our next episode in two weeks because it is going to be a big one. It's going to be our holiday board game gift guide for 2021. Don't miss out. We'll have plenty of great recommendations for buying holiday games, whether it's for yourself or for someone that you care about. Until then, my name is Nick Murray, and you've been listening to the Bytewing Games Podcast.